Welcome to the Events Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and each week I talk with event professionals and entrepreneurs about how they plan, promote, and run their events. We help you build your events empire by growing your business using live events. Whether you're running community meetups or conferences, trade shows, and other events, we focus on finding actionable tips that you can use straight away. We want you to get more attendees, produce epic events, make more money, and most importantly, to do it all with no stress. This podcast is sponsored by EventsFrame. Check it out over at eventsframe.com. Make the switch from Eventbrite today to our amazing ticketing and registration system with no ticket fees. Most ticketing systems charge you a minimum of 3% of the ticket price, but we just have a flat, low fee with no ticket fees and no restrictions. There's literally no system out there that is cheaper than EventsFrame. It's also super easy to use and you can embed your tickets in your website or you can use our own website builder which is really simple. We have amazing options to apply all kinds of discounts and all the features you'd expect from a much more expensive system like QR code check-in. Go to eventsframe.com, that's E-V-E-N-T-S-F-R-A-M-E.com for a free, no-risk, one-month trial. Hello and welcome to the Events Podcast, a happy 2020 to everybody and I hope you all had an amazing Christmas, New Year break. Uh, it's been a great start to the year so far. Um, I, went, I was lucky enough to go down with the family to Austria skiing for two weeks. We always start the year down in Austria. I think I've mentioned before I've been going to the same place for years and I actually used to be a snowboard instructor in, in the resort. So we go every year. Really, really great way to start the year for me. I'm lucky enough that, you know, the first week of Jan is kind of quiet in the education world still, so it's a good time to take it off. So fantastic time with the family, did lots of snowboarding, got my one-and-a-half-year-old on, on a snowboard, which if you check out my Instagram, you can see the footage. Really true, one-and-a-half-year-old snowboarding. And then last week was BET, B-E-T-T. I've mentioned this before, but BET is a huge education technology trade show in London. So we, are, we were there as Apps Events. It's a big event for us now. We really help Google out a lot. We help run the teaching theater for Google. We also ran an event called the Anywhere School. We had a bunch of educators from Scandinavia, from Japan, from Holland, and different countries going through a bunch of themed exercises in the Google offices. And also Acer. Acer are our sponsor, and we were helping them demo their Chromebooks and Windows devices, so really a lot. We had about 15 people working there and a really great way, really busy way to start the week. Actually back in Prague right now, and off again, off to California to Google's head office in Mountain View on Saturday. Uh, we've got an annual partner event, annual PD partner event, so really looking forward to seeing a few friends in San Francisco and then heading down to Silicon Valley to learn what's new with Google. So busy start to the year. It's only the 28th of January and, and already done quite a bit, but you know, that's, that's good. I, I like to be busy. So just to say as well, I mentioned before on the podcast that uh, we've, a lot's been going on in terms of what we're doing with events. We've actually sold EventsFrame and we're still promoting it on the podcast because we're good friends with the guys we've sold the business to and we still think it's a great product. We still use it ourselves at Apps Events. So very happy to recommend it. If anyone else is interested to sponsor the podcast, we're now thinking, you know, we'd love to get a sponsor, maybe somebody in the events area to help cover some of the costs of producing this and so to make sure we can you know do a regular two week every two weeks podcast so please get in touch finally to say as well 
If any of you out there need some help with launching or promoting your event, the thing is at Apps Events, we've got a huge team now. We've got a team here in Europe, in the US, and in the Philippines, and we really know how to do all aspects of promoting your event, you know, both on social media, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. We've got a graphics team. We know how to make podcasts. So if you need any help with any aspect of launching your event, promoting it, or even running it, you know, we've actually helped some people run their events. We've helped set up registration. We've helped do ticket sales. Get in touch. We'd love to partner with some people who are running events who've got an audience. So if that's you, and maybe you've got an audience and you want to run an amazing event, or maybe you're running it, but you want someone to do the heavy lifting, please get in touch, dan at appsevents.com, D-A-N at appsevents.com, and we'll set up a call on Google Hangouts or Skype, and we'll see if there's something we can help you with. So onto the interview, we had a really interesting chat with Tyler Benedict. Tyler uh, has a great website called Bike Rumor. It's one of the leading bike websites. And he also has a podcast called The Build Cycle. And I was, a, I was lucky enough to be a guest on Tyler's podcast. And we reposted it here at the Events Podcast. If you go to last week's episode, we have my interview with Tyler. But Tyler, as if he isn't busy enough already, he's also launching the Peak Content Summit, which is a marketing summit in North Carolina. And it's, it's the first time he's running this conference. So it was really great to talk to someone who's running an event to talk about the kind of issues that somebody hits the first time they do an event. We all know about the difficulties in launching, about promoting your event, about coordinating speakers. And Tyler is right in the thick of this now. So we get into a lot of it. I think it's a really good interview for anyone thinking of running a conference or anyone who's already running a conference. So without further ado, here is the interview. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today I'm delighted to be talking to Tyler Benedict who runs various things. He runs a peak content summit, Bike Rumor and a podcast which I've listened to for quite a while called The Build Cycle. So welcome to the podcast, Tyler. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Cool. So um, you're in, is it South, South Carolina or North Carolina? North Carolina. Yeah, I've been to Raleigh. I don't know if you know anyone near Raleigh. Uh, about an hour or so away. It's actually, if I can't fly to Greensboro, Raleigh is the next closest airport. Yeah, Raleigh, it's good. It's quite a, it's fairly cosmopolitan, isn't it? They, they have, I know they have direct flights to the UK and I think some other European places as well. It is growing. Places. Like I said, it's kind of a second option. Yeah, RDU, Durham in particular is sort of a cool place. It's really become, and for quite a few years now, a very hip place with a lot of good breweries. And I've got some friends there that, one of whom uh, runs a marketing agency and started a brewery called Pony Source, which is worth checking out if you're in the area. Yeah, that surprised me. Is like, um, like Raleigh is like the, the craft beer capital of America, which I, I had no idea. I mean, it's great. I, lo- I love craft beer, you know. So it was, um, I was surprised. I met a bunch of cool people. There. Just, just, I just, I had a free afternoon and evening after my event there, so I just went out by myself. And you know, some cities are just friendly, or maybe you just get lucky. I guess sometimes you just get lucky. But I just went out and met a bunch of people and had a really good time. You know? I don't know what's it like. Is it is it kind of a, a bit redneck in parts, or is it is it all kind of like? <laughs> I don't imagine. I mean, you, you, it's kind of almost the south. Not not that the south's redneck. I got a lot of great listeners from the south, and actually, Arkansas, no, some of it is. Arkansas is one of my favorite places in America. So, uh, but right? I mean, yeah. Well, Arkansas has got. It, it depends. Like, so I live in Greensboro, which is smack dab in the middle of the state. If you just put your finger on a map in the middle, there we are. And, you know, I, I tend to ride my bike south, my road bike south, because it's, you know, very country rolling roads and stuff. And, you know, to use a simple reference, the political signs you see in town versus out of town are very different. Usually um, the lifestyle is very different. So it, it just changes very quickly depending on how urban of an area you're in versus getting out into the country. And it's pretty easy to get out into the country here. You know, we grew up with a lot of 
uh, or the the area grew up with a lot of tobacco farms and you still see a little bit of that you know we're huge in textiles so it's not that they were growing a lot of the fabric raw materials like cotton and stuff here in particular in this direct area but a lot of the mills were here so you do see um, a lot of open areas and then big factories just sort of plop somewhere and you know for better or worse in this day and age a lot of those textile mills are getting repurposed for things but a little bit of it's coming back it's funny like well i'm from yorkshire in northern england and um i'm from a very kind of rural you know like like i say you would say redneck definitely where i'm from that's what it's like and <laughs> there's also a textile well i mean it's where the industrial revolution started you know i mean all the the mills uh you know cotton mills manchester area and the, the wool mills were all yorkshire leeds bradford area and and you know, it's interesting, the old mills, which, which now are all, you know, converted to kind of nice luxury apartments, are all in, in the countryside in sort of steep-sided valleys where they had fast, fast water flow, you know. And like where I come from in Howarth, it's, it's like that. A lot, of, you know, a lot of the really picturesque places are where the mills are, you know, because they wanted to they use the big water wheels to turn, you know, turn the machinery and stuff. You know, they're all over these mills. There's very few of them left now since, since you know, China and, and Asia manufacturing shifted there. Yep. Now, what's like, you've got a few businesses I mentioned. Like, what's your, obviously, we'll get into the events in a second, but what, what's your main business? I mean, is, is a podcast just something you do for fun and, and bike rumor is, is the main business or, or, or how do you do things? Yeah, it is. The podcast was really just sort of to scratch an itch I had of learning more about how entrepreneurs run their business. You know, people who have been far more successful than I have in growing, you know, not just big businesses, but just really good businesses and it's i've tried to interview kind of across the board and it's you know the more guests you get the the better excuse it becomes to just sort of contact whoever you want to talk to and maybe they say yes and so for me it was really a tool to learn but also a way to share what i've learned with other people because you know for, for the cycling space and, and we'll get to the cycling tie-in with bike rumor but there's a lot of people who have an idea, they think they can make a cool product or a cool new, you know, component or something, or they want to launch a little brand. And it, it, they've been in the position I've been in, you know, long before where you have an idea, but it's everything else about running a business that is a complete mystery. And there's a lot of things that a lot of entrepreneurs learn the hard way. And sometimes those lessons can put them out of business. And for me, I, my personal preference of things is if I could learn something from talking to somebody and they show me how they did it and how to do it right, I would much rather learn it that way than screw up and end up wasting a lot of money or time, you know, sometimes years or tens of thousands of dollars or more by making a silly mistake that if somebody had just said, oh, you know what, you should have done this, I'd be like, huh, well, that was, that was great. Why didn't I just do that? You know, and so that's the kind of stuff I want to teach through the podcast is, you know, hear how other people have done it, some of the mistakes they've made, the successes they've had. And, I'd much rather learn that way. And I think a lot of people are probably in that same boat. And, you know, the gist of the guests, if anybody has listened to it, you notice there's a lot of guests that have started or run companies in the kind of outdoor cycling adventure lifestyle space. And it's because I have access to a lot of those people very easily through Bike Rumor. And Bike Rumor is my main gig, which is it's the world's largest cycling tech blog. So we focus on the products, the technology, the components, the bikes, you know, there's very little, if any kind of racing news and athlete profiles in there. It's really all about the shiny stuff. And the site is about 11 and a half years old now with uh, anywhere from two and a half to three and a half million monthly pages, depending on the season and a really loyal following. It's especially within the industry and, you know, like pretty much anybody in the industry and any bike shop employee you talk to reads bike rumor. 
That's cool. cool. I mean, yeah, I, I've come across it. Didn't know, I didn't know it was connected to you. I mean, in, a few things you said, like, I think podcasting, I would recommend it to most people. I mean, the thing is, I guess people's fear now is podcasting's overblown. There's, there's so many podcasts. And, you know, it's kind of true. There is a huge amount. But it doesn't mean, like, you know, you don't, you don't need to be NPR, you know. You don't need to, like, have <laughs> millions of people listening, you know. Like, and especially if, if you're not doing it to directly make money, you're just doing it to build connection. I mean, like, for example, this podcast, the events podcast, you know, I mean, in the beginning, we had our software to promote, but we've sold that company. I don't, I don't even have any. There's literally nothing I have to promote on this podcast right now, you know. But I'm still doing it because I talk to people like you. Um, and you get to introduce people. I mean, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, there was a really interesting guy I spoke to, Chris Robb, you may have heard of. He runs uh, a huge event called Mass Participation World Conference. It's all about mass participation sporting events. And he started a bunch of events. You know, he, he was the road manager for all the road events, cycling and running for the Sydney Olympics. And then he, he founded um, the Singapore Marathon, which he sold to Ironman, you know, like, so, like super interesting guy, you know. And I'm straight away thinking I could probably introduce you to him because I've spoke to both of you now. There'd probably be some good connections there, you know. So you get, to, you get to meet people, you get to make connections, and people introduce you to people as well, you know. And it, it just, it, it, it's a good kind of virtuous circle. Yeah, and, and I've found that I tend to, meet a lot of like-minded people who you know you carry on the relationship with and they're just fun to hang out with yeah definitely definitely and um interesting on the cycling i've, I've got a bit of a connection to to bike manufacturing because i've been running an event in in taichung for a long time and i've got a lot of i'm sure you know it very well i've got a lot of friends there. it's kind of as far as i'm aware it's like the world capital of of cycling manufacturing you know people don't know about it because you know people like to say everything's made in america or whatever but but taichung is where a lot of stuff gets made, you know, SRAM and all these companies are based out there. And it's crazy. I mean, it's a huge city and, and cycling manufacturing is a, is a huge part of it. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's the complaint. Some people say, I think, is like, oh, well, which, you move all your manufacturing to China. And, you know, Taiwan is arguably is or isn't China, depending on who you ask. But it's the point is like Taiwan and Taichung in particular is where the expertise is for certain things. And the people there are just really, really good at what they do, especially with, you know, carbon fiber manufacturing. Yeah. And it's sort of like if you want to make the best product you can, that's, you know, why not go to the place that does it the best? Yeah, definitely. It's, yeah, Taichung's interesting. You know, there's always, um, I always meet a bunch of people. The hotel I always stay at, all, all the SRAM people stay there, you know, so I always end up meeting all <laughs> those guys every time I'm, I'm there. Obviously, we're talking about events. Like, so you, you mentioned before the podcast, you ran some cycling events and you sold that business. So, was that how you got kind of started? Because I'm always interested in. I haven't talked to many people about sporting events. The, the guy I mentioned, Chris Robb, was probably the only one. So, is that how you got started running events? Uh, yeah, that was the start. It was a you know, you figure if you're gonna bite something off, you might as well bite up something big with a 24 hour race. And the reason why I did that particular one is at the time, this was before I started Bike Rumor. I had a sports drink co company, a, a powder drink mix that was aimed at endurance athletes. And it was the first one that had a little bit of caffeine in it. And so I figured, okay, well, if we're making a caffeinated drink, what, what kind of event makes sense as a promotional tool? Well, obviously a 24-hour race because you're staying up all night. So I thought it would be fun to do a 24-hour race that uh, with the drink as the title sponsor and have jugs of that out on course and around for people to drink and fill and everything. And, of course – yeah, you know, the event side of it, if it's done well and you, you look at the numbers, you can make a decent amount of money. And for us, it was a promotional vehicle that 
also made a little bit of money for us. It was also a huge distraction and time suck from the main business, but I ran that for four years completely on my own. And in the fifth year, I could be getting this wrong by a year or so, but in the fifth year, I brought on a partner to help me with it. And then the next year, he just I, I sold it to him. And then a couple of years later, he ended up selling it to another group. But it was um, it was a lot of fun, and it was a great, great learning experience that has since helped me, you know, help others with events and stuff. But also, just it's like everything, right? Like when you know a little bit about a lot of stuff, it's easier to understand other people's business models, and and that helps, like with. With bike rumor, you know, when somebody comes to us and we're trying to sell them on a, a content marketing or an advertising package or something, and we can really understand what their business model is and what is important to them, it helps us sell something that actually is going to work for them. Definitely, definitely. It's funny that kind of event. I've I've got a friend I mentioned to you earlier. I'm I'm, I'm heading up to the mountains tomorrow for two days. We, we we spend New Year in the Czech mountains every year. We do a bit of skiing, and there's the same group of friends every year. You know, and the friend who's organizing it, he's um. The guy, the guy I, I go biking and snowboarding with, he um, is really into these um, bikepacking races, you know, these, these endurance races. He's, he's done a few. He's done the one, uh, you know, where you go from Canada to Mexico, a, a Tour Divide or Grand Divide or something? Uh, yeah, a Tour Divide, I think. And, yeah, and yeah. he's done one in Japan and one in Uzbekistan, like crazy races. Like when, when I look at these races and, you know, they'll sleep maybe three or four hours a night, five hours a night for weeks on end, and I'm like, God, just doesn't sound like fun to me, you know, like I, I like to, I, like, no. I, I mean, I love, I've done a few bike races, like mountain bike races, you know, even up to hundred K races. I don't mind a hard day, but I like to get a good night's sleep, you know, I mean, even your race, like fills me with dread, the thought of not sleeping. <laughs> I always did them on teams. We used to do a lot of them as teams, you know, four or five people. So you can take a little break in the middle of the night if you want. Yeah. And how did you, did you, did you, did you make much money out of this event? I mean, obviously you were promoting other things, but did it, did it make money in its own right? Yeah, it did. I think, you know, the first year was... Just to step in here quickly to mention our sponsor, EventsFrame, a project I'm co-founder of, and I want to mention our integrations, which we believe are the best available. Firstly, payment integrations. You can connect any payment gateways such as Stripe, PayPal, and Braintree, or even bank account or take cash. You can connect everything to EventsFrame. We also have the best marketing integrations out there with every email marketing system, including MailChimp, Zapier, Infusionsoft, Aweber, Drip. And we've got deep integrations with all the social media platforms like Facebook, Google, and Twitter. We've got thousands of events live on EventsFrame right now, ranging from small community meetups to huge trade shows and conferences. Check it out over at eventsframe.com. That's E-V-E-N-T-S-F-R-A-M-E.com. And now, back to the interview a massive like disaster and learning experience in that the venue we held it at was a, a county or city park i forget which one and you know we thought and again this is kind of like you and i've talked about this separately is creating a good experience for the participants and one of the things i thought would be fun would be like a midnight pancake dinner so i had a whole bunch of griddles pancake batter all mixed up we plugged them in and the second we turned them on the power breaker just blew like it, it could not handle. I don't know if you know, but like griddles and like hot pots and those kinds of things, they pull an insane amount of juice from the outlets. And when you try and run like five or six of them at a time, it's things were not happy. So, and then of course being in the middle of the night at a city park, there was nobody that could come and unlock the door and turn it back on. So we basically lost power to the main 
uh, little shelter where people were hanging out because it was also a tremendous downpour to the point where like trees and limbs were breaking from the wind and we had to call the race in the middle of the night for a couple hours while it was the worst and then start it back up. And it was just like everything that could have possibly gone wrong went wrong. And then we tore the course up so much and had to go back in and fix it afterwards. But like the grass in the middle of the field where everyone was camping and stuff was chewed up so bad. The venue's like, yeah, you guys can't come back here again. I guess uh, um, the strange mentality people do events like that is like the extreme weather probably made people have a real bonding experience and probably ended up enjoying it, I'd guess, because, you know, you, you do these events. I mean, I've done similar things and like, you know, the t if, if it's kind of tougher, then it, you, you kind of look back more fondly on it, uh, even if you don't always enjoy yeah. it at the time. You know? Yeah, it was, it's, I still, people still come up to me and be like, oh, I remember I did the first one, Tyler. It was, man, that weather or whatever, right? Like I went through three sets of brake pads. I'm like, yeah. wow, that's, that's impressive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's cool. So, so, I mean, did you, how did you end up selling it? Like, you know, I've actually, I've talked to um, a business broker on this podcast about selling your, your events company. And the guy I mentioned, Chris Robb, you know, he sold his Singapore marathon. Obviously this is, I'm guessing this is a much smaller scale than, than that. But, but like what, um, did, did, did someone you knew already come to it or did you market it for sale? Like, how did the sale come about? Yeah, no, I had a friend that was getting into event management and was, um, had a couple other smaller things he was doing. But uh, it, to go back real quick and answer your question, I think by the third and fourth years or something, I would maybe clear like between ten dollars and $15,000 of profit, which, you know, for somebody who has a volunteer workforce and only has to pay uh, a couple other people, um, that's not bad. Like it was a pretty well oiled machine by then. And we had found a really good venue by our fourth year. The venue for the second, third years was another nightmare for other reasons. It, it became a really well run event. And at that point is when I brought the friend on and he kind of ran it and we were just talking and I, I forget exactly what the deal was. Like he paid me like, you know, maybe 30 to 40% of the revenue from, the first year that he took over. And then after that, I just kind of let him have it as long as we retain title sponsorship for the beverage. And that was sort of like the deal we had going. And, and is, it, is it still running? Is he still running the event? No, he ran it for a couple of years and turned it over to the group that actually main, built and maintained the trails that it was being run on because for us, it was always, it was that particular trail network was Army Corps land. And so technically, private parties are not supposed to make a profit off of it, which made it a little bit of challenge to on the financial side. Eventually those guys were the ones that were really providing all of the volunteer labor and he ended up selling it to them and they were using it as a fundraiser and they, they really took it to the next level because at that point it was all in for them and they used it to probably raise, I'd say between 20 and $30,000 a year for it. And they, they ran it for 10 or 11, well, they ran it up to, I think, the event celebrating its 10th or 11th year. And then um, they shut that down because that, by that time they had started some other shorter ones. I guess the six-hour one they do, just it sells out in like two minutes every year and does really well for them. That's the thing, you know. I mean, sometimes events just have a life cycle, you know. Like they don't, you know, you, you can, uh, you know, like you mentioned this shorter event was sold out. And sometimes you've got to pivot and maybe, you know, people don't want a bigger event, they want a smaller event, or they want a longer event, or they want a different event, you know, and sometimes you, you just change it or you start another one, you know, I think that's, um, people shouldn't get too attached to anything, you know, if, if it's, um, it's great, I mean, I, like, I, you know, it's, it's hard for me to say, because I've had a few events now, like, um, 
I mentioned to you earlier, my first conferences I ran were Bangkok and Prague, and I still run them to this day. I run them every year. But like, and I, and I really want to run it every year, but I, I, you know, I shouldn't be attached to it because if it doesn't happen one year, it doesn't happen. You know, like it's, there's other, it doesn't happen because something's happening elsewhere, you know? It's, um, but it's tough. You want to keep things going, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I, I agree. Like actually a hundred percent. I try not to get emotionally attached to anything other than family. And, um, because you know, none of that stuff is infinite. It's harder. I mean, I, I used to be so bad. Someone told me a great quote is, uh, don't love anything that can't love you back, you know? And I, I try to, I try to stick to that, you know? Because you, you can get so, like, emotionally attached to a business, but it's, at the end of the day, it's a business, you know? It's like, if your website yeah. goes away, your business goes away, you know, no one's going to die, you know? Like, you do something else. Yeah, especially if you maintain your relationship. I should say, or not relationship, uh, oh, crap, what's the word I'm looking for? Reputation. Reputation, yeah, yeah. That, that, the that, other that's, R. That's, that's different. That's important. That's something you can't get back very easily. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's all you have, you know, like, and that, that, you know what I mentioned to you before about, you know, not canceling events, like, you know, that's, that's just, that's part of it, you know, you've got to, you know, people have got to come to something you organize and say, like, that was a great event, I got my money's worth, you know, I got more out of it than the money I paid, that's, that's actually, I've never really thought about it, but that's the thing, you know, they pay $500 or $50, whatever it is, it was worth more to them than that money, then at that point, you know, you're in the good books, you know. Yeah. And that's really what we try and do with bike rumor, you know, when we're selling, um, whatever kind of marketing package we want, we want them, the customer to be so blown away with what we delivered that they come back the next year and hopefully spend more. But yeah. I think that's with anything, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, so what, um, actually just to take a little back step, I mean, we, we jumped into the events, but how did you get started in the entrepreneurial world? Did you, did you have a job first of all, or did <laughs> you just get into setting up this website? No, I'll, I'll give you the super quick version. So my dad started an ad agency the year I was born, which would be 74. And so he, I, I grew up with, you know, hearing the stories of, of how he's, you know, doing advertising and marketing, all that. And then high school summers, I would go in and, you know, just started as like the errand boy. And then I would learn a little bit of the graphics programs and stuff and kind of learn a little bit more each summer. And then college, I would work there some summers. Um, eventually even doing like a tiny bit of account executive work or, you know, even like a tiny bit of business development. And then, um, after college, he said, as he told my younger brothers as well, you got to go work somewhere else first. And then, which was probably smart, but it ended up being a horrible place. So I went back after a year, worked there. And one of the accounts that I was working on was a group of doctors who were developing, uh, some herbal supplement line for whatever various, things various uh, ailments and as i'm working on it, i'm talking to them about well how'd you guys come up with the formulas like where where's your lab how are you formulating this stuff and they're like tyler somebody's making it for us we just come up with the formula we tell them what we want in it and they make it and i'm sitting there huh that's interesting i never knew about this whole private label manufacturing world because at the time i was doing a lot of mountain bike racing and the one thing that always seemed odd to me is i saw a lot of racers taking like Coke or Mountain Dew and opening it, let it go flat or like, uh, having a water bottle of that out. So, um, they could grab that on the last lap cause they just wanted that caffeine sugar rush as they were going into their last lap. Yeah, yeah. And then, but everybody at the same time, everybody really hated Gatorade because it was too sweet and acidic and tart. So I'm thinking, all right, if there's a sports drink that's mild and has a little bit of caffeine and still has all the right electrolytes, you kind of have this marriage of everything people want. So I just, created the formula, found somebody to make it for me and 
got a few friends and family investments and did that. And it was called Propel for about two months before Quaker Oats bought the trademark off me and for their fitness water, which is, you know, since Pepsi has bought. And that, that gave me the startup capital to realize I didn't need to work for my dad anymore because honestly, I was kind of bringing down morale at the office because I just, I didn't want to be there. Like it wasn't exciting or fun to me and I was always coming in late. So that's kind of how I jumped ship and started working for myself and have not looked back since. And that was about, I think, 2001 or two. Um, I haven't had a real job, quote unquote, since then. And uh, yeah, so that that kind of morphed from a sports drink line into an energy drink line like everybody else had. You know, there's like a million energy drinks out there, but we managed to keep that running for about six and a half years, uh, even though it never made money. It was always little band-aid investments from our friends and family network of investors until finally they said, you know, Hey, yeah, no more. <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So the writing on that wall, uh, we were fortunate that I was able to sell the trademarks and IP for that one as well to a very big beverage company. And then, um, which basically covered maybe like 80% of the debt. So we didn't actually make money ever on that, unfortunately. But um, when I knew that was happening is when I started Bike Rumor because I just, at the time, I didn't see any other cycling website that really was covering what I was interested in, which was just the products and tech from a real kind of weight weenie standpoint. And um, also nobody was really doing it in a blog style format. So I was a huge fan of the tech blog Engadget and still am. Yeah. And Nobody had that format for cycling. And so I just started it and people seemed to like it and it grew. And after a couple of years, I could stop doing freelance stuff and do that full time. And then I added one guy and then another guy. And you know, the team has just grown now. We've got um, four other people besides me that are full time or very regular contributors. And then a handful of freelancers and we're kind of spread all over the world. Yeah, is it a completely remote team? And like, do, you, do you work at home or do you have an office? Or what do you do day to day? Yeah, I have a separate office at my home. So it's a whole nother level with, you know, separate entrance, but it is attached to my home. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm here in Greensboro. My wife does some of the stuff with me a little bit and then everybody else is remote. So like we're like Ohio, Florida, uh, Squamish, Prague and um, Scotland are the main ones. It's funny, you know, I am. Um... Yeah, I'm a similar age to you, and I've got some, I've got a small son, like a, under two years old. So I've I've actually I've bought an office. We have a house just outside Prague, but I've I've got an office in Prague. And even though it's like 15, 20 minute drive, like I'm here now. You know, I'm going to leave, go home after this. But um, I I realized that I wasn't going to get any work done at home. You know, even if I had a separate <laughs> building. You know, I used to work. I mean, when I was single a few years ago, I used to work at home. I used to work co-working spaces, and I was kind of all over Starbucks. You know, just cafes. And now I'm like, I love coming to the office, you know, I, come with, I can get so much more done, you know, and, and I, I don't even, I can't even try to get work done at home. I mean, you've got a different setup, I guess. You've got a whole separate, you know, like entrance, but I, I know I'd still get involved in stuff when I'm at home. Yeah, I do. And there's honestly, there's some days when I don't make it past the kitchen table, but, um, and then every once in a blue moon, when I, there's something I just, I know I have to concentrate on. I actually do go down the street to the coffee shop because there's, you know, I'm sitting or looking around right now. I've got, like probably 20 something products sitting in boxes that I need to start reviewing. And it's just this, this mental clutter of things I know it. Oh, I got to do that. Oh, I got to do that. Oh, I got to do that. So sometimes you just got to walk away from that too. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's funny, you know, just, just want to come back to one thing you talked about, you know, the, the flat coke is, um, I were like, back in the 90s, I did, um, I used to live in Amsterdam, and I ran the Amsterdam Marathon. I'm not a runner. I'm not an endurance athlete at all, you know, but like, I, I just did it. I wanted to do a marathon, train for it, and I ran it with a good friend of mine who was a really good South African mountain biker. Both him and his uh, now wife were on the South African team from, for cross-country mountain biking. And um, we, got to, we got to like the last few kilometers and I just died, like just literally almost at the <laughs> point where your legs go. You know, I was, I was almost at that point when I just couldn't even, he was, I wasn't going to get across the line. And he like, he's like, wait here, wait here. He runs off the course, like runs into a bar, buys a bottle of Coke, comes back and I'm like, I'm like, what's this? Like, I'm not going to drink this Coke. And he's like, no, we do this. We do this. We have a little bottle of flat Coke. That's what he said. And back in the, back then, I mean, this is not long ago. It's, you know, 15, no. Yeah, maybe 18 years ago, whatever. He was like, you know, we, like he was telling me after this, like serious mountain bikes, he'd have a bit of flat coke, and he gave it to me. I drank a full. It wasn't flat because he just bought it from the coffee, but it, like it boosted me up, and it like it, it literally got me across the line, you know. So I mean, it, it like it really works, and I'm sure now with the drinks everyone's developing, you know, that, that there's probably a much more accurate formula. But just that basic sugar and caffeine, like you know, it, it can help you finish a race. It did for me. Yeah, it it works magic some days. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure there's probably some people still just take some flat coke, you know, and they probably just you know, go for the basics. Yeah, so so whatever. Um, how did you end up running this this kind of social media event? Like, or or is, it, is this the first year? And we talked about it before, you know, because for me, I, I'd be thinking, like, why aren't you running, like, a bike room event, like a bike room conference, <laughs> or like, you know, connected to that, that kind of business? Well, it's funny. I've, for many, many years, I've thought, okay, I've got this audience on Bike Coomer. What can I do with this, right? Like there's, and I just, I can't think of an event other than like doing a little social ride. And we've done a few social rides over the years and had a pretty decent turnout, but it's not really, I hate to make it sound commercial. It's not something you can charge for. And um, I, I really don't want to get back into the event racing, you know, like racing space because that's, we just don't cover that. Like there's a little bit of a disconnect. And so what I've found though over the last couple of years is <clears throat> we've, we've, we were very, very late to the game on bike rumor with selling content marketing. You know, I, I hate to call them advertorials or sponsored content cause they have those things have a negative connotation, but it's all the same thing, branded content, whatever you want to call it. It's, um, it was hard, not hard. I guess we just hadn't figured out how we were going to do that in an ethical manner that, somebody would actually want to read. And I think part of the problem was I was seeing it done so poorly elsewhere in some other magazines and stuff, and even in some of the cycling publications and websites. And some of them were getting really reamed for it on social for just how kind of shady it was. That I was like, I don't want to touch it. Not going to do that. But unfortunately, that's like, that's what the brands wanted. And, you know, banner ads were becoming a tougher and tougher sell. So we're like, all right, I got to figure something out. And I actually kind of like that challenge where it's like, okay, if you have to do this, yeah. how would you do it? You may not want to, but if you had to, how would you do it? And so we figured it out. Like we, I think we've really cracked the code on ethical, effective, and valuable content marketing with some of the programs that we have on Bike Rumor. And so the more we would sell these and explain them to the brands and, and try and figure out how we're gonna tweak it for each particular brand's needs, we realized just how many questions these brands had. and, and like very few of them have really figured it out and or they figured out some small part of it like there's a lot of brands with very deep pockets and they can do some incredible video production with you know well-known cameramen or women and you know great athletes and they'll produce these beautiful videos but then 
they throw it on their website or their blog or their YouTube channel, which has like zero following and traffic. And it was kind of a waste or they'll send it to us hoping that we'll just publish it. I'm like, yeah, this is great guys. This is gorgeous. But unless it's like one of those like Danny McCaskill videos that it's just going to absolutely blow up traffic on our site. Like we're not just going to publish a brand's content or marketing just because they sent it to us. And so, and then you got the flip side of it where the brand just, you know, they send out like the most horribly written press release and you're just like oh my god guys come on so there's there's a the whole spectrum of they're not putting themselves in your position they're not thinking what do you want what do you want as a site owner to get out of this you know they're just thinking how do i promote it and it's it's for people who is their job in pr and advertising it's sometimes they can be kind of naive about it yeah well i think the other the other missing piece of the puzzle is they're not sometimes it appears as though they're not even thinking about what is the what is the customer going to get out of this? It's like they're just tooting their own horn saying, here's oh, some of the like the marketing language used in these things would make you think it's the second coming of Jesus, this product that came out. And it's just like you're not actually explaining the benefit to the end user in a way that is going to resonate with them. And so what long story short is the more of these conversations we had, the more I realized that they're there is a need for an education on what is content marketing? What is content strategy? How do you go from, I have no idea what this is all the way up to, I have a plan. I know why I'm doing this, what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, when I'm doing it, where I'm doing it and to who I'm getting it in front of and how I'm going to get it in front of those people. And that's what I want is I wanted, I wanted it to literally go from A to Z. And so we're, I built peak content summit to, do exactly that and bring in speakers and panelists that can speak on all of those things and, and not just, you know, get up there and run their mouths, but actually like really provide actionable information. So when somebody leaves this thing, they're like, not only are they inspired, because there's a lot of conferences and events I've gone to where you get like all rah, you know, like hyped up and then you go home and you're like, I'm so excited, but I don't know what to do. Yeah. I want people to be excited and know what to do. Yeah, it's true. That's something I go for my events is, is like, I always say there's like something you can, on Monday you can you can use what you learned at this event, you know, like on, on Monday when you go back to work. That's, that's kind of the king. Not not like rah-rah motivation. But um, is, is it, so this is the first year you're running it or uh, is it the second year? Uh, this will be the first one. It's March uh, 11 through 13, 2020 in Asheville, North Carolina. So, that's, so, so you're right in the middle of it now. So this, is, this is a good time to talk. Like, how is how is it going? Like, obviously, you've got it, your website, you've got your venue, you've got your dates. Like, how um, you you got the initial stuff done? Like, how, how is it how is it going after that? It it's going. It's <laughs> so this is the thing. Like, it's um, there's definitely people signing up. I've got some incredible speakers lined up and and contracted to show up, and the interest level is massive. The one thing that I've heard from every single event organizer and venue and CVB person is that everybody waits to the last possible minute yeah, to sign up. So it. you'll probably get half in, in the, at least in the last month. Yeah. So it's a little stressful. Yeah. Um, but I think the good thing is with the venue I have and the setup I have is it doesn't take a lot to break even and we can arrange it such that even a smaller crowd would feel really, it'll feel intimate and effective. And I think people would really enjoy that being, having more one-on-one time with the speakers. But obviously for me, I'd like to build it up to a certain size. I think a hundred would be really, really good for the first year. And it would still, it would still be intimate enough that you have plenty of one-on-one time with everybody there. 
But um, yeah, so it's it's going well. But me being somebody who wants to has been to like social media marketing world where you have 10,000 participants in this massive production. I'm like, I want that. But uh, you know, got to start small, I guess. Some of the best, just just what you said, actually, some of the best feedback I've ever had for events has been really small events. Events that I, you know, if I'd have been a bit less, you know, I'm really hardcore and never canceling an event. I probably, most people would have canceled it and, and people liked it the most, you know? Um, and, and that's what you want because if you have a small event, everyone loves it. You know, cause small events, everyone gets to meet everyone. You get to meet all the speakers. You know, you, you can buy more drinks for them because, you know, you, let's, you know, whatever, you know, you, you want to keep them happy. You know, want to make sure they have a good time. And then they have an amazing time and then they tell five people each and then, you know, you have a big event the second year. You know, it's, 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 long-term, it's long-term thinking. Small events can, can be amazing, you know, or medium-sized events as well. You know, they, they, they can be really good. And, and for yeah. me, I, you know, second thing is some events I found it was just good to keep them at a medium level, you know. I, I was like... I was all about relentless growth in the beginning, you know, everything has to be bigger and bigger, more, more, more money. Now it's like, sometimes I'm just happy, you know, I've got one event I've been running and it's just 60, 70 people every year and I'm happy about that, you know, it's good. People come back, really high return rate um, and it's fun and it's, and to, to grow it to the next level would be really hard, I think, just because of, you know, dates and location and, and the circumstances around the event. So, you know, sometimes that, that's the natural level of an event isn't, isn't that big, you know? It doesn't mean, I'm not saying yours would be, but, you know, you, you, find, you find your level at a certain point. Yeah, yeah. Well, it'll be good. I mean, I think no matter what we end up with attendance, it'll be, uh, it won't be overwhelming at, um, for a first year event. And, you know, like we just talked about, I've put on events before. I think a smooth running event comes down to, a good checklist and a couple of contingency plans, but um, it's, it's still like if, if a thousand people showed up, I might be a little bit flustered. And but then I'd hire people, you know. Yeah, sure, but I mean, but he wouldn't get to that because you know you'd like you 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 can cap your registrations at a certain number if you only have like twenty speakers or whatever number you know whatever X number of speakers and you, you know you can't allow more people in you know unless unless you can get speakers at the last minute, but that's tough as well, you know. So I mean, for me, yeah. It's a tough thing to do, but I'd always be ready to uh, to turn people away. I've done that a lot, and and it's really hard as a businessman like you and me, like just to, to turn down money of people that want to come and pay for your event. But you know, it's the best thing sometimes, you know, because if if you're going to end up, means you've got to get extra speakers who who are not properly vetted, and maybe you haven't got the people to cope. It it, it can be hard sometimes, you know. I mean, yeah. I mean it, well, everyone's, everyone's got a different opinion. Some people will just do it, you know, take a risk. But I, I don't. I just I close registration like all the time. Right. Well, I'm about to sort of force my hand on that, just because the venue I want it kind of caps it. I think 110 would be the max. They said 100, but it looks like there's a room for a little more. I, I don't know what fire code says. On the website, something like but, last 10 tickets, last whatever, last five tickets. You know, like or put it on your news yeah. on your mailings. You know, like let let people know there's a there's a limit. Um, I, I do that. Yeah, I like it. Cool. Uh, so, anything else about your event? Like, any anything else you've learned along the way that's been so far? Obviously, you haven't done the event yet. You know, what we should, we, should, we should chat later once it's actually gone ahead and, and get the detail. But anything else to this point that was different to how you thought it would be? Um, well, yeah, that would be a fun conversation. Is the here's what you thought beforehand? <laughs> what about now? Um, you know, I, it's. So with the athletic events, I didn't really have to worry about hotels and, and food and beverage and all that. So there's that adds a lot of, I guess the surprise to me is how much people charge for catering. <laughs> it's sort of like highway robbery in my mind. So what I've 
I've done. And the other, the other challenge that I thought, um, maybe I just didn't know, I didn't really think about it is, you know, I want, the reason I chose Asheville is because it's a little bit of a destination town. So for a first year event that people, there's not a proven track record for the event. At least the town has a proven track record of being cool. And I think, you know, that be, helps it have a little bit more draw. And so what, a couple of things that surprised me is like the lady at the Asheville CVB I've been working on has been super helpful with contacting the hotels, but that it kind of stopped there. I'm like, like, these are marketing people coming in, people who are going to have an audience and talk like, why don't you present, why don't you offer the, or host the opening night reception or something, or just at least have a table come talk. And they're like, ah, no, that's okay. And I'm just, I don't understand. Like, why would you turn down an opportunity to come and promote your city to other people who probably plan events? And then the other side of it is how hard it is to incorporate local food and, and beer. I mean, there's a million breweries in Asheville, but the venues oftentimes really make it hard to bring in outside food and beverage. And so what I really wanted was this event that not just taught people the content marketing, but really showcase the area too. Because I think for me to, if I grow this, you know, and it moves from city to city, if I can say, Hey, look, this is all the ways that we were able to promote Asheville's um, hotel industry and, and food and beverage, you know, the, the local scene, I think the next time, like, let's say I wanted to go to Knoxville or something, Knoxville would be like, oh, yeah, can you do that for us? And it's just it's kind of like the venues are making it really, really hard to, to do that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, I, I mean, you know, food and beverage, you're probably not going to get to bring anything into the hotel. So I would just say do an evening event at a bar or something and get the local beer there. You know, find, find a place that's got the craft beer you want or the food you want and do it outside the hotel. I think the yep. time yeah, that's what we're doing for the opening night for sure. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah cool. Well, look, Tyler, it's yeah. been a real pleasure to chat, and I look forward to talk to you after the event and uh, and get an update. But um, thanks very much. Anything else you want to plug or anything else you want to talk about? Uh, no, I'd say if you're a cyclist and you like shiny things, check out bikerumor.com. And if you are trying to figure out content marketing strategy or you just want to learn a little more, go to peakcontentsummit.com and Hopefully we'll see you in March. Sounds good. Thanks, Tyler. Yeah, thank you. Do you want to sell more tickets to your amazing events? EventsFrame event ticketing has been built to minimize the amount of time it takes to buy a ticket. Result, you sell more tickets. Check out eventsframe.com.